Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at a very familiar passage today as far as the life of a Christian. The life of a Christian. You know, I was looking up some things, some quotes by people who are not believers in Jesus Christ on how they defined life. And I hope that you don't look at it this way. One said this, a little work, a little sleep, a little love, and it's all over. Another one said, this life is a hollow bubble. Now think about how hopeless that is. We never live, we are, we are always in the, the expectation of living, Voltaire said. Atheist. <clears throat> life is the jailer of the soul in the filthy prison, and its only, and its only deliverer is death. Others said this, life is an empty dream. A walking shadow. Life is a reasoning on the past, a complaining of the present, and a trembling for the future. Boy, that's a hard one. You know, just complaining now and, man, when it all is said and done, there's just fear. How sad and how empty. But I trust that's not your outlook on the Christian life, or on life. Because I trust that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And I want to look at this morning what the normal Christian life looks at as we go before the table. What is the normal? By the way, I highlight the word normal. This is not extraordinary. I'm not talking about super Christians here. This is how, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, have put your faith and trust in Him, this is how we should think. This is how you should think. Did you happen to notice what uh, Ben said at the very end? Nothing satisfies like Jesus. That's really, the, that's really the focus of this passage right here. Nothing satisfies like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can go out and look for other things, right? By the way, are there a lot of trinkets out there? A lot of toys in the world? A lot of distractions? A lot of idols? But nothing satisfies like Jesus Christ. Well, let me just give you four very simple things. We'll expand on them probably in the, in, the, in the next weeks to come, only because of the time. We're going to, by the way, be in this passage for a few weeks. Because, again, this is such an important passage on the Christian life. How do we live the Christian life? The, the first one, by the way, let me read it. Actually, I better do that. Because otherwise, just a few verses throughout chapter 3. Let's start with chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. You might want to underline that, no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Go to verse 12. Not that I've already attained, or already am perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. He finishes out to verse 14. 
And I'm actually going to start with verse 12. That's going to actually be where the first point is, and then we're going to go back to verse 3 and look at some other things. But the first major point of the normal, I, and I want to emphasize this, this is the normal Christian life, is that we know that we have been apprehended by the Lord. The word is apprehended, if you want to fill in. Again, look at what verse 12 says. Not that I've already become, uh, already attained or already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. That last phrase, has also laid hold of me. I've been apprehended. Now, even though this is at the end of this particular passage, I'm going to use this as the starting point. Again, he, someone has laid hold of you. Well, question, have they? Has someone laid hold of you? That word laid hold of means to seize or apprehend, to make one's own. He's referring to election there. He's referring to the fact that you have been chosen. Have you been laid hold of? Now think about Paul. Think about Paul in, in, uh, in, in verses 3 on, 3 to 6 there. He just laid down all his what he considered important before salvation, before meeting Jesus Christ. All the things that he was proud of. All the things that he had confidence in the flesh in. I.e. circumcised of the eighth day, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. All the things that he would say, this is what makes me important before God. But that, he was on the Damascus road that one day. He was a proud, arrogant, self-righteous, boastful Pharisee. Going down to what? Actually persecute Christians. Thinking he was serving God. By the way, many people in this world persecute Christians thinking that they are actually pleasing God, right? So, I mean, he's just the, the, the typical um, religious persecutor here. Suddenly a light shone as he had never seen before. He saw Christ and Christ took hold of Paul. And Paul would say it this way in, in my own vernacular. He grasped me. He apprehended me. Did, did Christ ever apprehend you? Well, if you want to know the story, it's Acts chapter 9, verse 3. Let me read it for you. It says, As he, Paul, as he came near to Damascus, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I want you to catch... Count with me how many times Lord is used in the next few verses here. And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, being Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Four times the word Jesus Christ is referred to as Lord. Lord! Why? Because when you, are, when you are following a Lord, it's what do you want me to do? The Lord was the one that apprehended, apprehended this servant that we call Paul. Paul was the one that, that the Father had given to Christ, if you really want to go back to eternity past. Like in John chapter 6, verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the idea is this, in eternity past... I believe the Father chose and gave to the Son certain who would be born, who would be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now I say all that, and not to get into an argument about election or choosing, but the idea is this. This is the main point. 
Paul was not pursuing Christ, Christ was pursuing Paul. Okay? But, because of what Christ did in Paul's life, now Christ, or Paul is now pursuing Christ. Do you see that? Do you get the point? If I believe that I've been apprehended, now I need to be the one pursuing. Christ pursued me. But once I realize that, now I, can, now I pursue Christ with vigor because I realize that I have been already apprehended. I don't pursue Christ to keep myself saved. I pursue Christ because my heart has been changed to pursue Christ. Which, this is a real good application. Our life should be characterized, therefore, by being God-centered rather than self-centered. Why? Because Corinthians, even chapter 6, verse 19 says this, what? You are not your own. You have been bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I've been apprehended. I I have been apprehended. I was not looking for God. I was in a home where, in fact, Jesus Christ was not even proclaimed. My mom and dad were not saved. Thankfully, I had a witness there. My Uncle Louie and Aunt Gladie brought us to church, my sisters and I. And then finally one day, I heard the message, understood the message, received the message of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for me. And I was saved. And I was apprehended. Have you ever been apprehended? Have you ever been pursued? Well, what should happen after that? My life has become God-centered, not self-centered. Now, I still have the appendages of the old sin, na- or sin principle. I don't like calling it sin nature. It's really the sin principle. It's that old man. Oh, there's still, you know, I still want to be selfish at times. It still rears its ugly head. But the point is, is if I've been apprehended by God, then God becomes the center of my life. And our life, number two, should be lived wholeheartedly, therefore, for Him. That's why the second part of of, uh, chapter, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 12, says, I press on that I may lay hold. See, He says, I'm going to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me. I'm going to continue down the path. Christ came, he, He rescued me, He saved me, He saved me for a purpose. We find that in Romans chapter 8. Uh, verse 29, to be conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, God saved us through His Son Christ so that we might be like Him, Christ-like. And now Paul says, and because I know that I've been saved by uh, Christ, I've been saved, I've been apprehended, now my whole life is going to be focused on fulfilling the purpose that God has for me, and that is become more like Christ. And helping other people become more like Christ, i.e. that they get saved and that they be matured. Not perfection, by the way. When he says the word press on and lay hold of, he's not talking about perfection. He's not saying I've already become perfect. Boy, isn't that a great encouragement? See, Paul, if he was preaching here today, he would say, you know, I know you're all sinners. You're all struggling. Man, some of you have got some really, really deep struggles. I mean, pride and selfishness is ingrained and it's destroying your marriage even. It's destroying your relationship with your kids or with your parents. I mean, I know some of you have anger and bitterness and you just can't seem to let it go. But, but Paul says, you know, I struggle with certain things. See, I I struggle, but do you think Paul struggled? Paul wasn't perfect either. 
And we sometimes think, well, Paul, the great apostle, yeah, he was a great apostle, but he struggled as well. But he says, listen, I know this, I have been apprehended and therefore I'm going to pursue as I have been pursued. But I'm going to pursue the pursuer. Okay, Christ pursued me, I'm going to pursue him. I'm going to press on. That word press means progress. The, the idea of lay hold of is to seize. And he's not talking about salvation there. He's saying, as, as Christ has, has saved me for a purpose, I'm going to fulfill that purpose of being more like him. And again, I think of just one particular verse in uh, 1 Timothy 6.11. It says, flee from these things, you man of God. And the things he just was talking about is the love of money. The love... Love there, the idea is idol. Where, what is an idol? An idol is something you rely on, you hope in, you, you uh, hope for. It's what satisfies you, it, what you trust in. And he says, listen, I want you to flee from the love, there in that context, of money. But I would say this, what are the idols in your heart? What are the things that you really hope in and trust in and rely on? And by the way, we, as John Calvin said, 500 years ago, he said, our hearts are like a factory, but it's an idol factory. We just keep making idols from our heart. Our heart yearns to worship. Our heart yearns to, to fall down and rely on someone or something. And unfortunately, many times it's not God. So like, as we start the new year, January 1st, 2012, ask yourself, what am I really hoping in? What am I pursuing? Is it really Christ? Or do I have my hope in and reliance on something else? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it is wealth. Maybe it's prestige. Maybe it's power in some... I mean, what are we hoping in? What are you hoping in? See, this is it's really good to go before the table and say, Lord, I only want to hope in you. I only want to rely on you. For this new year, I don't want these other idols. I know they're going to come, but I need to be able to identify and say... Lord, make me sensitive to where I'm at spiritually. Am I really trusting in you? Because Paul says you need to follow Christ wholeheartedly. Well, the second part of 1 Timothy 6.11 says, Flee from these things, idols, you man of God, and pursue righteousness and godliness, faith and love, perseverance and gentleness. And those are all the characteristics of not only before God, but relationships. don't have time to go into it, but... But notice, he just says, press on. Second part of verse 12, I press on, I lay hold of. I liked what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, do you ever feel like you would like to get away from it, i.e. Christianity or even him? But it has got us in a grip. It has mastered us. Have you ever, have you ever just felt like in the Christian life, oh, I just want to walk away from it for a while? Christians bother me. The Lord's expecting too much of me. This weight and pressure, and I know He wants me to grow through these relationships, but I just like to walk away for a while. You ever feel like that? I have. But then you, but He's got you in His grip, and you can't, and you can't just walk away because He's in you. Philippians says, being or Philippians one six, being confident of this, of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will perfect it, same word, until the day of Christ. He's, it's going to, oh, there's been times that I just want to give up and walk away, and Lord, just let me just be selfish and sinful and not have any consequence over it for a while. 
Well, I might be selfish and sinful, but he can't walk away from me, John. In you. Deal with it. Or let me say in an illustrative way, is your Christian faith something that you take up, as it were, and carry with you like a briefcase? I was going to bring my briefcase up here, but do you treat your Christian life like, life like a briefcase sometimes? You know, you take it and, oh, I want to open it now. And, yeah, I think I'll carry it with me for a while. Ah, no, I don't want to carry it now. I'm with my friends. I just want to have a good time. I want to sin a little bit. I want to be selfish and have my little idols for a while. Let me put my briefcase over here for a while. Is your Christian life like a briefcase? Or are you rather in the position of a slave, mastered and laid hold of, possessed, sometimes aware of the foolish, sinful desires to get away, and yet knowing that you cannot get away? Are you more like that? So in that sense, you wake up every morning and say, Lord, you're at the center of my life. You are at the center of my life, and therefore I need to commit my life to you this morning because I know I need to walk with you because I can't get away. G.I.A. Packer said this, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God. That's not what's really most important. But the larger fact that underlies it, the fact that he knows me. It's not just that I know him, it's that he knows me. Does he know you? He goes on and says, I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend. There is a tremendous relief, he goes on and says, in knowing that his love for me is utterly utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. I love that. See, he's got a hold of me, and he even knows the worst about me. He does know the worst about me. And there's some really worst about me. Okay? So that no discovery can now disillusion him about me. End quote. If he knows, if he is all-powerful and all-knowing, and he knows the worst about us, and yet still has pursued you and brought you to the cross and brought you to his Son and forgiven you. Now, does that mean you're perfect? No, not that I've been perfected. He still knows the worst about me, Paul would say. And yet his love is consistent in my life. Isn't that great? See, I want to go before the Lord with honesty. And I think sometimes as believers, you know, we, we do know that we can deceive others, right? I mean, you can walk however you want here. I mean, you can come in with a smile on your face and praise the Lord. And isn't that great? And by the way, that music was excellent. Wasn't that worship? Singing to the Lord. Ah, thank you, Lord. But only the Lord knows whether or not that's really coming from a genuine heart, right? And is it from a pure heart? Only God. But you know what? At times we do deceive or however you want to say others, right? We look a certain way. But just remember, Christ really knows. He really knows whether or not our heart is pure before him and true before him or our actions and our speech before others. But you know what's great is we can go before the Lord. Lord, forgive me. Let's face it, he already knows our sin issues. He already knows where we're at. He already knows not just our sin, but our propensities towards sin, towards certain temptations. 
And we can be purely honest before Him because He has prior knowledge of the worst about me. <laughs> so as we go before the Lord, remember, He is our Father. We can confess to Him, but please do not go before the Lord's table and partake in a manner that's unworthy because He will chasten you. He will chasten you not as, his, not as a judge, but as a loving Father, but He will chasten. And that can be very, very severe. So, we've been apprehended. Number two, we're undergoing a complete change of outlook and values. For this, we'll go back to verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Now, by the way, this is the normal Christian life. The normal Christian has been apprehended. The normal Christian is going through a complete change. Now, for some, the change is not as radical because they're Perhaps their perspective, their pursuit is not as radical. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are going undergoing a complete change, a complete transformation of the heart. I mean, go even back to verse 3, the second part of verse 3, <clears throat> to have no confidence in the flesh. Paul, think about Paul. He was a self-righteous Pharisee. And yet when he met Christ, he had to throw away all those things that he thought was in his good category as far as righteousness before God. When we come to Christ, we go through a complete transformation. Rather than trying to please Christ on our own merits, we accept what and receive what Christ has done for us based on his own merit. See, Christianity, the point is this, is never an addition to our lives. It is always central. It's not like we add Christ. It's not like we, you know, somehow, well, now that's a Christian. He, he is central. He is absolutely center on our life. The very center of the core, as it were. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5 it says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Are you a new creature today? If you are a new creature, then your heart has been transformed. Still have pediments there, but it's been transformed. And now we're undergoing a radical change. Now, again, as we approach a new year, and I know there's a lot of times you know, people make you know, new commitments for the new year. But just know that if, if you're one of Jesus Christ, he is, he is re, he's making everything new in your life. Let me give you a few. One is uh, you, you, you get a new view of yourself. As you walk with Jesus Christ, you, become, you, you are newer and newer and newer. Does that sound right? A new view of self. This once proud, arrogant Pharisee is now ashamed. Look at second part of verse 7. I have counted loss all things for Christ. Even himself, in fact, he was willing to even call himself a chief of sinners. He wouldn't have called himself that before Christ, but now he's got a new view of himself. In Romans 7, he called himself wretched man that I am. In other words, a Christian who is walking with Christ is willing to accept the fact that he is still a sinner. In fact, not only is a sinner, but the closer you get to light, the, clo the, the bigger your darkness is, the, the, the more in focus your darkness, as it were. And they're willing to even say, yes, yeah, I'm a wretched man. I can see where sin is so easily brings me down. So he has a new view of himself. He has a, a new view of God. Second part of verse 8, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. There again, that, the idea of Lord. Before he was trying to persecute Christ, now he says, no, he's my Lord. 
And when, it, when you say Lord, you're saying everything that a, a Lord is. A Lord is a master. And, I, and, and the new view of how God operates in my life is this. I'm not just here to please God. He is my master. Look at the second part of verse 9. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So there's a, there's a new view of self. There's a new view of who God is. And the, and the deeper you grow in our, in our knowledge of the Lord, he becomes more and more the master. And it's not that he isn't the master, but your perception, your understanding. This is how it plays out. He takes something away from you. And where it used to be, you'd have a hissy fit, anger and frustration. Why did you do this in my life? As you come closer to the Lord, what do you do? You're the Lord. I'm not. If you want to take something out of my life, if you want to give me something, what did Job say? Blessed be named the Lord. He gave, he took away, right? That's a mature man. That's why you call him a, a very mature man because, or a woman. Why? Because as you grow in your, your understanding of the Lord, what is it? You start realizing that all the things that I thought were secure in my life, none of it is, except for my relationship with Jesus Christ. And as he wants to take it, well, it's, it's his prerogative because he's the Lord. By the way, not only do we get a new view of ourselves and of the Lord, but we get a new view of the world. Remember what Romans 12 says? Because of the mercies of God, we need to what? Present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. But verse 2 says this, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. So we reject. I liked what Phil Johnson had to say. This is a lengthy quote, but it, it hits the point because we're going into a political season. We're going into a time when many Christians are going to hope in the political system. Please, Lord, don't let this person get elected, whoever that might be. Okay? This is what Phil, Phil Johnson, by the way, is the executive director of uh, Grace to You. Okay? But when he got saved, this is what he says, referring to giving up politics. Quote, before I became a Christian, I was a hardcore, obsessive political activist. Throughout my high school years, I thought I wanted to be either a politician or a newspaper pundit when I grew up. That was my highest worldly aspirations, and the political power struggle was the single central driving interest of my life. But when I became a Christian, I gave up that passion, passion up for something infinitely better, something of eternal value, the gospel of Jesus Christ. From the night of my conversion until today, I have deliberately steered clear of partisan, partisan politics in the same way most of you would steer clear of pornography or recreational drugs. Because in my own experience as an unregenerate person, party politics represented the same kind of addiction. In fact, it was the very first worldly fixation I set aside when I became a Christian because it, stu it struck me almost from the outset, that an obsession with earthly power and political ideology is basically an addiction to the wisdom of this world, which is foolishness with God. Well, I thought, hmm, let's read on. That's not to suggest that I'm naturally apathetic about politics. To this day, I know that if I listened to a steady diet of Rush Limbaugh and Ann Coulter, I would begin to feel rising fits of those same old political passions. But political activism was so much an idol in my old pre-Christian life that today I think it is it in pretty much the same way the, as the Apostle Paul said he regarded his former life as a Pharisee I counted as dung 
I relegated those passions to the rubbish heap of things I count as lost, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that deep depends on faith. End quote. Point is, a new view of the world. I, I have actually gone down the same path. Periodically, I find myself turning on the radio for a few minutes and then saying, you know, I've got to get away from this because I have these rising fits of political passion. Let me encourage you, not as a resolution, but just as a pressing on. Lord, keep my eyes on you, not on the political system. And therefore, Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for, for, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now he said, I would like to be with Christ, but it's more beneficial if I'm here with you. His only point of staying on this earth was it was beneficial to Christians. Beyond that, it wasn't about himself. He said, I, I would just rather be with you, Lord. Do you see how everything is changing in your life? That you have a new outlook and new value system that's being developed. And, and I'm encouraging you for this new year as we go before the table, do it with passion. Press on because you have been apprehended. How about the third one, very quickly? We must be prepared to sacrifice for our Lord. The second, first part of verse 8, I also count all things lost, all things. second part of that says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. That's not hyperbole. That is not hyperbole for, for uh, Paul. He did suffer the loss of all things. First of all, all his righteousness was, he said, it's like dung. But think of this, his, his ranking as a Pharisee, gone. His ranking, his prestige, his prestige sitting before Gamaliel, you know, as far as the great teacher and all that part of it, gone. His comfort, obviously, I mean, you can look up Second Corinthians chapter 4, or chapter 11, and he, you know, go through all the persecutions, all the hardships that he went through. Comfort was gone. Even his people, he was representing the Jewish people. Do you know who God sent Paul to? It wasn't the Jews, what? Gentiles, i.e., by the way, how did the Gentiles, how were they referred to from a Jewish standpoint? Dogs, okay? Now, he loved those dogs. <laughs> he loved the, Jewish, or the Gentile people. But if you think about that, even, even the people that he loved, God said, nope, that's not the group. It's going to be over here. You're going to be the apostle to the, to the Gentiles. He lost it all, but I want you to catch this. Paul lost it all and was perfectly satisfied. Because why? He gained Christ. And this year, God may ask you to lose even more than you thought you already have lost. Are you going to be willing to be satisfied? By the way, I don't like those words. I don't want to lose things. I love my life. I like the comfortableness of it. But am I willing to say, Lord, it's yours? It reminds me of C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was a missionary. He was actually very wealthy. He was given a lot of money at, uh, uh, as an inheritance. And he actually gave it away before he became, went into missions. He just said, Lord, I need to have my eyes focused on you, not this stuff. But this is what he said. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I can ever make for him could ever be too great. And he actually lived out. He actually gave away everything he had before he went to this, in the field. But then this is what I, th I found interesting. As it pertained to his wife, this is what he said. He encouraged his wife to say a little poem every day so that she might keep matters in perspective. This was the poem. Quote, 
Dear Lord Jesus, you are to me dearer than Charlie ever could be. Charlie, C.T. Studd. Let's remember that the only relationship that could ever satisfy completely is Christ. Not even marriage. Loss was gain for uh, Paul. And then finally, we must desire knowing Christ above all else. Second part of verse 8, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Question is this. Is the knowledge of Christ above all else? <laughs> Just with the, I mean, that's, he said, listen, this is Paul's point. If I can, if I can pursue the Lord... If I can have him, then everything on this earth is less than. Lord, whatever you want from me, everything else is, I mean, everything else is less than. I was reading an article in Voice of Martyrs magazine, and they were saying that in the last three years, 30% of this world, which is 23 countries, 30% of the world has seen 12% increase in persecution. The, The point is this. The world is becoming more and more and more hostile towards us. If you're a Christian, more and more. And the reality will be this. We will lose more and more of our earthly freedom. But the, the, the title of the, mess, uh, the, the little article was this. The sky is not falling. Remember Chicken Little? Oh, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. The point is this, if you're walking with Jesus Christ, if he is your Lord, the sky's not falling. Because everything is on, on course. Everything is exactly where it should be. His plan is being accomplished. But we have to know this, that we've been apprehended. God has a purpose for your life. Yes, there is, there is sacrifice ahead. And even right now, are you willing to sacrifice? Maybe the sacrifice for right now is, Lord, I just don't want to go down these old paths that just keep bringing up these old passions that just keep me off the track. But when it's all said and done, the sky is not falling, and no matter who gets in, God's plan is being accomplished. Do we believe that? This year should be a very hopeful year, because if we go before the, the table this morning... We are confessing together that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is in control, that everything he wants to see accomplished is, is, is happening. And maybe there's difficulties in your life. Maybe there's hurts and all these other things. And, Lord, I just don't know. Can I trust you? I'm asking you this morning to go before the table with a pure heart and say, Lord, it's hard, but I want to trust you. In fact, I came up with a... There was a prayer. This is not original with me, but I want to—I rarely read a prayer, and I never read other people's prayer, but I want to read this one. This is A.W. Tozer. This is, and as we go before the table, I think this is so fitting for us to say, Lord, this is where we're at. This is what he wrote years ago. Father, I want to know you, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self, so that you may enter and dwell there without rival. 
Then will you make the place of your feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it. For you yourself will be the light of it. And there shall be no, no night there in Jesus' name. Are you, could you honestly say that? Lord, there's something in my heart. I want to root it out. It, it's going to be inward bleeding. It's going to be hard. But if I don't see it now, please show me because I want you to root it out. That's my prayer for this year. I want you to root it out so that as I come before the table, my heart is pure before you. I want you to bow your heads. And again, talk with the Lord and prepare your heart so that as we come together, we can come together unified. And ushers, if you would come forward. Are you free today? Again, a freed one has a love in their heart for the Master, right? And I keep going back to this prayer by Tozer. Let me read just one. That middle sentence really hit me. Does this, is this the prayer of your heart? Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Are there any rivals in your heart before the Lord? Now, that slave girl, when she was freed by Lincoln, said, Man, I just want to please you. I want to do whatever it takes to please the one that freed me. I trust that is in your heart with even a greater intensity because we're talking eternity here. Lord, whatever you want. And sometimes the Lord is going to tell you, ask you this, will you be willing to give up? And it may not be a sin. It may be just something that even from the world perspective is good, but not the best. Are you willing to give it up to pursue him? Father, again, we thank you for these reminders. Thank you that when it's all said and done, you pursued us first. You loved us first. Thank you, Lord, that you have changed our value system. You have changed our hearts. You have put love in our heart, not only for yourself, but for each other. And as we approach this new year and seek to walk with you through it, Pray that you'd give us insight. Lord, if there's any rivals in our hearts, please expose those. Thank you again that as you do surgery on us, you do it gently. And Lord, help us to be teachable. Help us to want to walk with you so bad that whatever it takes, Lord, that we're willing to do it. Remind us often that only you can truly satisfy. In Jesus' name, amen.